Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the Emergency Medicine Residents and Faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. EM Cardiology by Dr. Littman. Welcome to this week's Cardiology Core Concepts for Emergency Medicine Physicians, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from Carolina's Medical Center. Today we have a big group of residents, so let's go around the table really quick with introductions. I'm Dr. Chrissy Zahner, Katie Lupez, Natalie Wood, and Russell Tregonis. And of course, the star of our show, world-renowned cardiologist, Dr. Littman. Hi, I'm Dr. Littman, and you will always recognize me from my heavy Hungarian accent. <laughs> this week's installment is sponsored by... Gravity. Gravity. Unlike my Tonopin, it just works. Gravity. Now let's get on with the show. Today we're going to be discussing management of atrial fibrillation in the acutely ill patient. Dr. Lippmann, what's the driving force for these patients? Well, many patients who are critically ill have stress, adrenergic activation. We are using pressors, inotropes, inhalers, which are obviously beta-adrenergic agonists. Many patients have electrolyte abnormalities, fluid shifts. Some of our patients are elderly. Some have structural heart disease. They have demand ischemia. Sometimes we need to use chest tubes that can irritate the pericardium, and that's a big trigger for nuanced atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter. Okay, so there's a lot of things that can cause it. What is it that's making these patients so unstable? And that's a very good question. So patients who develop rapid atrial fibrillation, they have reduced left ventricular filling for two reasons. One, because the rate is fast, so the diastolic interval is short, and they lost atrial contribution to ventricular filling. And when you have decreased left ventricular filling, you will have decreased stroke volume that will result in adrenergic activation that will further increase the heart rate. So this is a vicious cycle, rapid heart rate, decreased LV filling, increased adrenergic activation, and more heart rate. And because of that, suppressing the heart rate acutely is an urgent task. That changes the vicious cycle. That turns it around. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense in our acutely ill patients. We want to slow down their heart rate so they can actually get more filling, better stroke volume, and other things that are going to help improve their hemodynamics. Now, is the treatment that we're going to provide to these patients different than the treatment they would get in the outpatient setting? Yes, absolutely. In the outpatient setting, we always focus on stroke prevention. The only important thing is anticoagulation. Whether or not we use rate control or rhythm control strategy, there's no real difference. We use beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, who cares? In the inpatient setting, patients are hemodynamically unstable, so rate control, rate control, rate control should be our focus. Okay, so outpatient, we're worried about anticoagulating. In the inpatient setting, we're worried about the rate control. So how do you achieve that rate control? Very important. There are a few general guidelines that uh, we should use when we attempt rate control. First of all, give yourself an endpoint. I'm going to control the rate by 10.30 today. Second, I can do it. <laughs> Third, and most important, you have to understand that the bolus is crucial. Rebolusing is crucial. The bolus turns off the vicious cycle. Okay, so the bolus is most important. What medication are you bolusing here? Basically, we have to give an AV nodal blocking agent, and there are four classes of AV nodal blocking agents. Each have their own benefits and sort of drawbacks. We have IV digoxin, IV beta blocker, IV amiodron, and IV diltiazem. Which one do you like to use? Well, I like to use IV diltiazem. I think IV diltiazem is the best choice. IV digoxin, as we all know, is not very effective in itself. We'll talk about IV beta blocker later, and that can be used under specific circumstances. IV diltiazem should be the number one choice. 
I feel like a lot of people like to use deltaism. How do you like to dose yours? We have to give enough. That's the main important message here. And we frequently underdose deltaism, and that's why it doesn't work. There are different dosing regimens that are recommended by our PDR, and I like the weight-based dosing regimen. What is your weight-based dose? So the ideal first dose should be 0.25 milligrams per kilogram IV deltaism given over two minutes. And then we start a deltaism drip at five or 10 milligrams per hour. So you're saying that we can do a 0.25 mg per keg bolus to start with the deltaism. Can you start with just a 10 milligram bolus? Yes, you can give 10 milligrams of bolus. Many patients are a little bit hypotensive and you don't really want to give a high dose. And in some patients it will work as long as you understand that in the majority it will not. So be willing to go back in about 20 minutes and see if it did the job. If it didn't, then give the 0.25 mg per kg over two minutes. Okay, so if we need, we can do the 10 milligram bolus, but we just need to know that it might not work. So we need to go back quickly and check. And if it's not working, let's go ahead and use a bigger bolus. Now, what if we give a 0.25 mg per kg bolus and we're still not getting good control of our heart rate? Yes, we can give a higher bolus though, so we should always re-bolus. The bolus breaks the vicious cycle as we talked about it. And the second bolus dose should be 0.35 milligrams per kilogram body weight given over two minutes. And this, some would think it's excessive, but these doses have been tested in the 1980s, 1990s and were found to be safe in the majority of patients. Okay, got it. 0.25 first, if that doesn't work, gonna go up to 0.35 mg per kg. Now, talking about all this weight-based dosing, can't we just titrate the deltaizam to the heart rate? So, again, that's a very good question. After every bolus, we are going to start a drip, and the drip rate should be 5 or 10 milligrams per hour. So can we just titrate the drip to adequate heart rates? Absolute answer is no. Deltaizam drip should be renamed in your mind and your heart as a maintenance drip. The deltaizam drip will maintain whatever you achieved with the bolus. If you achieved a heart rate of 170 beats per minute with the bolus, then the drip will maintain that regardless of how high you give. It will not do anything in itself. So before you increase the drip rate, you should always re-bolus. Okay, so I need to re-bolus before I increase my maintenance dose, but can I go above that 15 milligrams per hour? Absolutely. The way you should think about it, that deltaism is a relatively short-acting drug with very little cumulative effect, especially the intravenous version of deltaism. So the way to think about it, that if you gave 25 milligrams, let's say, over two minutes, and that was safe, why wouldn't 20 milligrams given over 60 minutes be safe? You know, 50 milligrams per hour is a recommended maximum dose, but we have certainly given 20 or 25 milligrams per hour maintenance dose, and it turned out to be very safe, and it's more effective in maintaining the heart rate. Okay, so that makes sense. So if 20 milligrams over two minutes isn't going to harm the patient, then certainly 20 milligrams over an hour, if it's required to maintain their rate, won't hurt them either. Absolutely. Okay, what if we've done all of this? We've done our appropriate weight-based bolus, and the heart rate is still high. I probably will not give a higher dose of deltaism than 0.35 milligrams per kilogram, so then we have to look at another agent. And my favorite second agent on top of deltaism is intravenous digoxin. Okay, tell us a little bit more about intravenous digoxin. So, IV digoxin in itself is not very effective, as you all know, but as an add-on to IV deltaism, it can be incredibly effective. The way I look at it, that you have primed the AV node with the deltaism, and then IV digoxin will be effective. I don't usually give it for patients who are currently on digoxin, 
unless I'm sure that their, the toxin serum level is relatively low. The other point is that everybody's worried about chronic kidney disease, but you don't intoxicate with an IV bolus. So even if the creatine is three or four, you can give one dose of intravenous bolus of digoxin. So what is your recommended digoxin dose? We usually give 0.5 milligrams IV times one, and that's a pretty hefty dose. We usually give maintenance doses of 0.1 to 5 milligrams a day for heart failure patients. So 0.5 milligrams given once on top of diltiazem usually is all that is needed to do the job. One of the beauties of intravenous digoxin on top of diltiazem is that it's not very short-acting. So we give one bolus, and it will push down the heart rate, and it will stay down and stay down and stay down. Okay, so we've got IV diltiazem. We can supplement it with IV digoxin, but what about beta blockers? Beta blocker is also an excellent choice if we remember that we are using it for bolus purposes, to push down the heart rate. So we need to give a good dose of beta blocker. The problem is that many critically ill patients are not good candidates for high-dose beta blocker. So a lot of critically ill patients may be not good for beta blockers, but what patients may you consider them in? There are certain patient categories where beta blockers should actually be your first choice rather than diltiazem. Basically, I would think of using beta blocker rather than diltiazem in patients who have rapid AFib and ongoing ischemia, rapid AFib and hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, rapid AFib from thyrotoxicosis. In these patients, beta blockers are probably the number one choice. And what kind of beta blocker are you using? For bolus, intravenous metoprolol is a good choice. We give 5 milligrams every 5 minutes until we reach the 50 milligram total dose. All right, so we bolus them with metoprolol. How am I going to keep that rate? And that's a very good point. And metoprolol is very good to push down the heart rate, but it's not very good to maintain the heart rate. To maintain the heart rate, we need to give something that is short-acting that can be given in infusion form, and that beta blocker is actually esmolol. Oh, yeah, esmolol, real short-acting, fast onset. How do you dose it? The problem with esmolol is that also needs bolus and maintenance, bolus and maintenance. So the bolus dose is always 500 micrograms per kilogram, given over one minute, and then you start a drip rate at 50 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And then you go back in 20 minutes to see if it did the job. If it didn't, you rebolus this 500, and then increase the drip rate to 100 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Then if it, that didn't do the job, then you rebolus with 500 micrograms per kilogram again and go up to even 200 micrograms per kilogram per minute. All right, so for my beta blockers and the patient with ischemia, hokum, thyrotoxicosis, I'm reaching for esmolol, 500 micrograms per kilogram bolus, followed by 50 to 200 micrograms per kilogram per minute maintenance, or metoprolol, I'm doing 15 milligrams divided over three doses in five to 10 minutes. When am I reaching for amiodarone? Amiodarone is frequently used in some institutions. In my personal experience, it's really rarely needed. There are a number of studies that have shown that amiodarone is clearly less effective than diltiazem to control the heart rate in rapid AFib. It's a rhythm-controlling agent primarily, not so much a rate-controlling agent. It does decrease the heart rate, but not more than IV digoxin in itself. And everybody knows that IV digoxin in itself is not very effective. Amiodarone also has side effects. Uh, it's costly. So I'm not saying you should never use it, but you almost never need it. Okay, so you don't like amiodarone so much. Um, diltiazem still has a lot of side effects. Are you worried about hypotension in these patients? Uh, yes, I mean, there are certain facts about diltiazem. Intravenous diltiazem is a vasodilator, we all know that. So it can result in a reduced blood pressure. The 
clinically stable patient who comes in to ED ops with rapid AFib is usually a no big deal. And actually by reducing the heart rate, the blood pressure can come up despite the fact that it's a vasodilator. But in the critical ill patient, we're frequently profoundly hypotensive, we cannot give a big deal Tizen bolus that will control their heart rate. So we need to look at other strategies. What other things can we do to protect those patients from hypotension? And again, there's a strategy. The strategy for yourself is that I can do it. I have several tools at my disposal. And there are basically three major tools at your disposal. The first one is give IV fluid boluses. I mean, I'm teaching to the choir. You have already done that. For hypotension, you have already given uh, IV fluid boluses. I know you mentioned digoxin after diltiazem, but is it something that you could give before? Absolutely, and that would actually be my first choice. So if a patient is too hypotensive for a high dose of intravenous diltiazem, I give IV digoxin first. And again, that will not do the job, but will bring down the heart rate a little bit, and it will, quote unquote, prime the AV node. And after the IV digoxin, a lower dose of IV diltiazem, which may be safe for that hypotensive patient, may actually work. Okay, so maybe we could start off with IV digoxin before using our IV diltiazem. Now, is there a certain way we should dose it or a certain way we should time it? My recommendation is that if you start with IV digoxin followed by IV diltiazem, give the IV digoxin and then wait for 25 or 30 minutes. So why is that? Digoxin basically has two effects on the AV node. It has a direct AV node blocking effect, but it also has a vagomimetic, parasympathomimetic effect. And that second vagomimetic effect usually peaks at 20 to 30 minutes. So we want to use that time frame when there is maximum effect on the AV node to give the diltiazem to maximize the rate control. All right, so we're giving DIG first, waiting about 20 minutes, then starting our IV diltiazem to maximize those AV nodal effects of digoxin. What about stuff like pressors? Well, obviously, if the patient is hypotensive, you're going to think about pressors, and the most widely used pressor in the critical ill patient is norepinephrine levofed. The problem is norepinephrine that it's a potent alpha-adrenergic agonist, but also a, at least moderate beta-adrenergic agonist. And beta-adrenergic agonists increase the heart rate in rapid AFib, so we don't need the beta effect of norepinephrine. Okay, so norepi has a little bit of beta, also has the alpha we want. Is there a pressor that has mostly alpha that can really help us out? Absolutely, and that is phenylephrine or neosinephrine. Phenylephrine is a pure alpha-adrenergic agonist, so what it does, it clamps down the vasculature. It's a pure alpha agonist that causes peripheral vasoconstriction. And that is very useful in these patients for several reasons. So why would alpha adrenergic effect be useful in these patients? In addition to increasing the blood pressure, phenylephrine will already decrease the heart rate. Phenylephrine, by increasing blood pressure, will trigger the intracardiac and neurovascular baroreceptors. So it has a very prominent indirect parasympathomimetic effect, a vagomimetic effect. It's so effective that way back when, in the 1930s, 1940s, when we did not have intravenous adenosine or deltaism rapamil, phenylephrine boluses were used to, to convert uh, parasympathomimetic tachycardias. It's like an internal carotid massage. So it is very potent in decreasing the heart rate in itself. And now you have a blood pressure, and now you can give a lower dose of intravenous deltaism. Awesome. So it's decreasing our heart rate, increasing our blood pressure, just what we're looking for. 
So how am I giving this? Boluses, maintenance strip? Again, it's a very useful drug because you can just give a bolus. Uh, when you give a phenylephrine bolus, usually you give it over 10 to 20 seconds and it's effective within a minute. But the effect, the blood pressure effect and rate effect will last up to 20 or 30 minutes. So you don't really need to start with a maintenance drip. You have now 20 minutes to give the and bolus that will control the heart rate. Okay, so it sounds like we can give phenylephrine in boluses, but what's the dosing? There are no real good established doses, but give enough. That's my recommendation. And enough would be, uh, I would give 100 to 300 micrograms IV push over 10 to 30 seconds. Anesthesiologists usually give like 40 or 80 micrograms just to support the blood pressure, but that's not what we are talking about here. We really want to increase the blood pressure uh, to a degree which will result in a decreased heart rate. And less than 100 will not do the job. So 100 to 300 micrograms IV bolus. I'm starting to see a trend here. Bolus, bolus, bolus. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, that, that, you're seeing the good trend, yes. Even I can remember that. So we're doing IV fluid boluses before diltiazem, IV digoxin boluses before diltiazem, and IV phenylephrine boluses before diltiazem. Okay, so bolus, bolus, bolus. Now, do you think that there's any good time to control the rhythm? Well, yes. Here we have a paradox. In the acutely ill patient who develops atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, they're frequently unstable, and because of that, you would like to restore normal sinus rhythm. Unfortunately, these high-risk patients have ongoing issues, so even when you restore sinus rhythm, they may not keep it. You know, the same triggers that were responsible for the initial rapid AFib are ongoing, so emergent cardioversion is rarely performed. Well, when would I actually perform an emergent cardioversion in these patients? Well, there are some clear indications for emergent cardioversion, and if a patient has rapid AFib and cardiogenic shock, that would be one. Rapid AFib in a patient with STEMI, that would be another one. Rapid AFib in a patient with severe hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, we call it Hocum crisis. Or just the patient is clinically unstable, so general clinical instability. You know, the patient is sweating and hypotensive. Patient is sweating, you are sweating. Think about cardioverting that patient. I think a lot of us are a bit nervous about pushing that button. Is it ever wrong to attempt cardioversion? I don't really think so. Most of these patients are intubated, sedated, you put on two patches and press a button. You know, the worst <laughs> outcome that can happen, that it didn't work, or if it worked, the patient will go back to atrial fibrillation. I mean, otherwise, there's really very minimal risk. So I would never criticize anybody for pushing the button in these patients. If you feel they're unstable, just give it a try. That's good, Dr. Lichtman, because we really like pushing the button. <laughs> You're emergency physicians, I know that. <laughs> exactly. Are there any caveats to this? Yes. So, again, if it's emergent, you do it. But if it's less emergent and you're just thinking of cardioverative patient because the patient is getting better and you want to send the patient to the floor in sinus rhythm, you should always make sure that this is AFib rather than MAT and this is not repetitive atrial fibrillation. Okay, so what do you mean by repetitive atrial fibrillation, or MAT? MAT, you probably all know that MAT is basically uh, sinus tachycardia with frequent multifocal PACs. MAT patients are never candidates for electric cardioversion. MAT is a non-convertible rhythm. Again, why not? Because MAT is sinus tachycardia with frequent multifocal PACs with variable PR intervals. 
Why do we call it MET? Because it's just faster to say so. But it's sinus tachycardia. It's not chocobo. The other issue is repetitive AFib. What is repetitive AFib? Patient can be in AFib for 98% of the time, but some patients will have episodes of intermittent short periods of sinus rhythm. Okay, so if a patient seems to be going in and out of atrial fibrillation, or if they're having multifocal atrial tachycardia, how do I figure these things out? So you have to go to the monitor, and hopefully the patient will have monitor recording that you can review. So what you do here, you go to the monitor and review the last couple of hours or 12 hours or 24 hours, as long as they have been in atrial fibrillation. It's quite possible that the nurse told you the patient has been in AFib all night because the nurse did not recognize that there were 14 brief episodes of science rhythm. So why don't you shock these patients? The way I look at it, that these patients go into science rhythm all the time. They just cannot keep it. If they had 14 brief periods of science rhythm in an hour and you shock them, you change the 14 to number 15. <laughs> so that's not going to help them. So what you need to do is try to keep them in sinus rhythm. So we've looked at their rhythm strip, and we see that there are episodes of sinus rhythm. Well, we don't want to shock that because then we just give them one more episode of sinus rhythm. So how do we control their rhythm? Yes, I mean, you can still use diltiazem for rate control for these patients, but these patients are actually excellent candidates for amiodarone. Amiodarone, as we talked about, is an excellent rhythm controlling agent. These patients demonstrated that they try to be in science rhythm. They're trying very, very hard. They need some help to keep them in science rhythm. They need a little help from my friend, as Beatles would say, right? And that <laughs> help for them is the amiodarone. If a patient went into science rhythm 14 times in an hour, a little bit of amiodarone will hopefully finish that up and will keep them in science rhythm. Do you have any other choices? Many patients have repetitive AFib because of a hyperadrenergic state. So these are the patients where I would think of maybe considering beta blocker like esmolol. Many times for these patients who are now already much more stable because you wanted to semi-elective cardiovert them, you may want to switch them from diltiazem to esmolol, and sometimes that will also be helpful in maintaining sinus rhythm. Got it. So repetitive AFib or MAT, we can consider using amiodarone or maybe even esmolol. For MAT, I'm not sure I would use amiodarone. IV diltiazem is still a good choice. IV beta blockers are an excellent choice, except for most patients with MAT are wheezing, so we cannot give it to them. Sometimes magnesium sulfate will do the job. I look at MAT as torsats of the atria, and that's what will trigger you to think about magnesium. But for the repetitive atrial fibrillation, you're absolutely right. IV amiodarone may be the best choice. Okay, so just repetitive AFib, we can use IV amiodarone or IV esmolol. If we're thinking more MAT, we may consider a beta blocker unless they're wheezing, um, but think mag sulfate, torsades of the peat wave. Excellent, yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Lipman. That's a lot of great information. Let's go over a brief summary of everything that we've talked about. Atrial fibrillation is very common in the critically ill patient. The most important thing is rate control. It's the bolus, stupid. Pick your medicine and give enough, and then give more, and then give even more if that doesn't work. We have four main options of medications we can use. IV diltiazem, IV beta blockers, IV DIG, and IV amiodarone. IV diltiazem should be your number one choice. You can use IV digoxin to pre-treat or after you've already given IV diltiazem. You can use IV beta blockers for conditions like ischemia, hokum, or thyrotoxicosis. IV amiodarone is almost never needed. And don't be afraid of the hypotensive patient. 
you have lots of tools at your disposal. You can give IV fluid boluses, IV digoxin pretreatment, and phenylephrine. And lastly, you can push the button and shock people if you need to. The one exception is the patient with repetitive AFib or MAT. Those are the ones we're going to want to use our drugs for. For repetitive AFib, think about amiodarone or esmolol. For MAT, consider mag sulfate. Uh, thank you very much. I think this was an excellent discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again for your insight, Dr. Lippman. I bet we'll all be a little bit more comfortable managing that patient with atrial fibrillation and RVR. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios here in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. CMC out.